Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. And this weekend is the fifth anniversary of Superstorm Sandy hitting our region. And if you judge by dollars spent by the city of New York, they're not even halfway through the response five years later. New York One's Josh Robin reports that $5 billion have been spent with $7 billion more to go in the next four years. We'll talk to Josh Robin in just a minute. His three-part Sandy Anniversary series on New York One also raises issues from people not satisfied with the response. Here, for example, is Seth Pinsky, Mayor Bloomberg's head of resiliency planning post-Sandy, who thinks Mayor de Blasio is taking his eye off the ball by rolling social justice and inequality issues into future hurricane planning. There are issues that are very, very important, and then there are issues that are existential in nature. And I would argue that climate change is one of a very, very small handful of issues that are truly existential when it comes to the future of New York City. But Mayor de Blasio's resiliency chief, Daniel Zarilli, replied, We face many challenges as a city. Yes, we face challenges from climate change, but as well as from increased inequality and other challenges. And with those two clips from Josh Robbins' New York One reporting in his five-part series, I think I said three a minute ago, five-part series, we welcome him back to WNYC. Hi, Josh. Hey, Brian. Good morning. There's so much to Sandy recovery and future hurricane planning, but let's start with that issue. How do the Bloomberg people think social justice is working against being ready for the next hurricane? I heard those two clips. I could almost not believe them, that they were the, you know, the difference between the Bloomberg administration and the de Blasio administration shrunk into two little clips. Well, let's let's break it out a little bit, because what we were talking about there were these major flood resiliency projects that Bloomberg unveiled um, that are behind schedule, uh, according to the original schedule. So I, I want to add the caveat, as I, as I do in my story, that Seth Pinsky um, says that the issues that de Blasio talks about when it comes to social justice are very, very important. He also talks about the um, good work that the de Blasio administration has done when it comes to reducing the city's greenhouse gas emissions. What he was talking about specifically there was that he does not believe the city is moving fast enough on these major barriers that were called for at five spots within the city. And what you heard from Dan Zarilli, who, by the way, wrote the climate section of Bloomberg's report. He's a holdover from the Bloomberg administration. He's saying that we can basically do both at the same time. Wasn't one of the issues with Sandy that poor people got hit proportionally harder in terms of the impact on their lives? And I know there are a lot of other people hit too, a lot of single family homeowners on Staten Island and elsewhere. Uh, But, you know, so many people in public housing located in flood zones and subject to power outages um, that there was a disproportional impact on the poor that any future planning would have to take into account. Yes. And one of the barriers that they're behind on um, is on the east side, and it protects an area in Manhattan that was hit extremely hard. One of the other people in my story, uh, a woman who was born with cerebral palsy, lives in one of the buildings that was affected, and she was stranded for six days. So these barriers, actually, many of them protect low-income areas. And I think that the the barriers would 
maybe disproportionately um, help them, considering that a lot of them are um, near NYCHA housing. And let's go through some of those, because they really span so much of the city. I mentioned um, the money spent by the city so far in Sandy Recovery and Damage Prevention for the Future, $5 billion spent, $7 billion more to spend over the next four years. So that indicates the long um, timeline and maybe the slow pace of getting this stuff rolled out. You also made a list for your series of some work yet to be done and even yet to be budgeted for. Yeah. So let me go down some of these and you tell me, you tell our listeners, are these considered good progress after five years or falling behind where we should be by now? Um, on the east side, East Harlem, um, a report warned of a risk for flooding during extreme weather events. The goal there was up to $200 million with an expected completion of last year. Mm-hmm. A progress report shows work on a study would begin this year. That's from your story. Tell us about East Harlem. All right. So these East Harlem, um, that area is particularly vulnerable. You wouldn't think about it, but um, right along um, the FDR Drive, that's an area that saw um, some flooding during Sandy, if I remember correctly. And also the engineers now believe that it's particularly vulnerable. That was an area that was highlighted in you can call it the SIR report, S-I-R-R. It's an acronym that Bloomberg administration officials use. So that was one of five areas. As you mentioned, they they came up with these um, places where there needed to be a system. Um, Zerilli actually wrote that section. And fast forward to where we are now, it is obviously not built. It was supposed to have been built last year. And instead, we are, um, the call for this year is to have a study as to what should be done. Another one, Red Hook. You say it was supposed to have up to $200 million for flood protection completed by last year. The city now has half that amount for a flood protection system. The federal government is reviewing the project, clouding when it will be in place. That's right. Red Hook was another area. Anyone who went down there um, would know that that got hit particularly hard. $200 million flood protection was called for, up to $200 million. City has half that amount. We're waiting for the feds. They have installed these barriers. A couple of caveats on them. They're not a integrated flood protection system. They are helpful, but they are four feet tall. The storm surge during Sandy reached six feet. Additionally, a little bit off topic, but still in Red Hook. If you go to the NYCHA um, complex there, which is vast, you'll see a bunch of trailers. They are technically called temporary uh, hot water boilers. We are now almost five years later, and they are still there. It's going to be until the next decade when we see across the city more NYCHA boilers installed that are permanent. But the stat from what you just said, and when I saw it in your piece, that floored me was that the barriers that they have um, off Red Hook are four feet tall. When Sandy hit, the water reached six feet. Yes. So whatever they put up, they know is inadequate to prevent from just the same event, never mind something worse. Yes. (laughs) I can't necessarily defend it. I'm just reporting it. Right. Uh, Nobody... um, uh, explain to you why that is. Is it because they're temporary? They are. Well, it's 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 kind of a piecemeal strategy, I would say. There is flooding that happens even when it isn't a hurricane, and that will be helpful during those normal uh, flooding episodes. Let's keep doing this. Another one is the Hunts Point Food Market in the Bronx. 
where as much as 60% of our fruits and vegetables are brought into the city. What's happening at Hunts Point? Well, there is a that was at least $150 million. And right now, there is a plan to spend $45 million that will launch a project for backup electricity uh, by 2022. Hunts Point, a lot of people just kind of pass it either on the highway or uh, obviously don't think about it when they're crunching into a salad. Hunts Point is extremely important for not just the city, but for the region. Much of our food comes through there. It is a miracle of nature, frankly, that Sandy didn't flood it. And there, uh, there is a scaled back plan that, as you mentioned, is not being built yet. My guest is Josh Robin, New York One reporter who just completed a five-part series on the status of Sandy recovery and future hurricane planning in New York City uh, for New York One. And we can take phone calls on any aspect of this. Listeners, if you're concerned about uh, the next Sandy-like storm hitting your area, if you're in a place that was hard hit by Sandy itself in 2012, or if you have any other question or thought, 212-433-WNYC-433. 9692. I guess maybe in defense of the city a little bit, we could go down every wish list item. Sure. And Zarelli, who worked for Bloomberg and now works for de Blasio, was he the one who called some of these things aspirational to you? But whoever it was, um, there is only so much money to go around and the city does have to make hard prioritization choices. Yes. Um, I want to say a couple of things about that. You are exactly right. And a new mayor comes in and brings a new agenda with him or her. Um, uh, The budget has gone up about 20% since Mayor de Blasio has taken office. and The total city budget? Yes. The total city spending, uh, uh, there's a term that the uh, independent budget office uses. I think it's funded budget. Um, So I just want to make sure I'm I'm clear about that. But yes, it's 20% higher. In any event... um, you know, there are things that have been done within the city. If you go down to the Rockaways, the boardwalk is a lot better and a lot stronger objectively than it was. And you do single that out in your report as a success story. Yes. And I also want to mention that this Bloomberg plan, um, well, if you type in into the Bloomberg plan, subject to available funding, it comes up more than 100 times. Now, the Bloomberg administration said that there are certain strategies here. We can um, ask for more money from Washington and perhaps get it. And obviously, that hasn't been the case. But I don't want to let the current administration off the hook either. And I think that they they agree with it and and you know have said that we need to to step on it a bit. This is a, a, a threat that's only getting worse. But when you talk about the total city budget and choices that have to be made, would it be fair to say that? deciding to spend a lot of money on universal pre-K that Bloomberg wasn't planning to spend has to come from somewhere. And one of the places it might have come from was the robustness of post-Sandy spending? Yeah. Look, money is money. I mean, you know, bureaucrats will say, well, this is capital spending and this is um, operational spending. You know this. They, But money is money. And it was spent somewhere else. And getting back to Pinsky's point, there are very important things in, that go on now. And then there are things that speak to our very existence as a city. Um, one other one from this list before we move on to the people who actually died during Sandy and how to prevent a recurrence of that. Um, the seawall 
to reduce flood surges. I think this is the one that's off the Lower East Side, but clarify this for me. Okay. It used to be called the Big U because of the shape of how it would protect the city, but now I hear it's jokingly being referred to as the Big J. Or half a J. <laughs> I think in one, one of your reporters had that. Um, Okay, so the Big U came about. It was announced. Uh, some people still refer to it, even though it's not technically called the Big U anymore. And it was supposed to be a U shape around Manhattan, going up to the, to, from the uh, middle of the east side to the west side. As it is now, it's one piece that they're really concentrating on. That piece is from, I think, 25th to Montgomery on the east side. Um, there is federal money there that needs to be spent. That deadline has gotten pushed back twice. I'm not going to deny that these are very complicated projects. And part of this might be that the regulations, frankly, might need to be streamlined. You know, Maybe the governor and the mayor um, and leaders of the state legislature could sit down and say, how can we get these existential projects done quicker? But speaking directly to your point, we are working, they are focusing pretty much now on that section on the Lower East Side. There is other money um, for the for Lower Manhattan and for Battery Park City. Um, I think other officials will say that the state should get more involved, but as it stands right now, it is that one chunk of the U, and we'll have to wait for other parts of whatever letter ends up. David in Chinatown. You're on WNYC. Hi, David. Yes, hi, Brian. Thank you for taking my call. I just called because you did mention that some poor people or many poor people were disproportionately affected. I acted as a volunteer a day or two after Sandy, and... We were uh, pulled together in Chinatown, and we had to go into some public housing that had no lights, no, no elevator, obviously, dark stairwells, lots of recent immigrants that were afraid to come to the door. So you don't know who's in these apartments, and we were carrying gallons of water up these stairwells. And I'm, I just can't presume that that situation lasted for many, many days or even weeks afterwards. And I think the toilets weren't even working because you couldn't get the water pressure to go all the way up to the top floor. So I personally, I'm not a trained EMT or a fireman. I'm just a regular citizen. I was shocked. I was shocked into disbelief. And then a week later, I went out to Coney Island. And in Coney Island, they have public housing buildings that go up to at least 15 or 20 floors. And people were trapped up there with no elevators, people that can't walk, seniors, things like that. So I just calling to give that feedback. David, thank you for that report, and thank you for volunteering uh, on behalf of everybody. Um, so that suggests another issue that you deal with in your series. It's a lawsuit filed by disability rights advocates charging that the city hasn't done enough under federal law to make sure people in wheelchairs and with other disabilities are equally protected for the next big storm. David's talking about people who couldn't get down from um, high-rise projects and the like. And the parties in the suit have reached an impasse. That's right. What's the legal claim? Well, the legal – so t t to start off, the woman who I profiled in this, the part two, was named Melba, is named Melba Torres, a woman who lives in a NYCHA building uh, on the east side. She has cerebral palsy, as I mentioned. She needs a wheelchair. During Sandy, she was trapped in her apartment for six days. The, she says that the police came at one time and said that uh, rescuers could not take her out. Um, the lights were out. The uh, water was out. Uh, the gas was out. And – she was there with her aid um, and is obviously, as you can imagine now, quite 
uh, agitated about the prospect of being stuck again. The lawsuit she joined afterwards was from a uh, disability rights group. It actually predated Sandy, but Sandy added more uh, impetus to it, more imperative to it. And she... Uh, they are at an impasse. The city and and this disability rights group are at an impasse, particularly about what type of evacuation procedure should be required. Additionally, I should note that I talked to um, the emergency management commissioner um, who said that there are lists that are being made to identify these individuals, which seem to me different from what the NYCHA uh, CEO and chair told me about lists already been made. So I think that there are people who live in NYCHA facilities, 11% of our population in the city is disabled, who want to have the comfort from the city to know that this wouldn't happen again. I think we might have a caller on the line who's involved with this effort. Let's see. Susan in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, Susan. Hi, Brian. I'm so delighted that you're having this show. Um, We are thinking a lot about the anniversary of Sandy and what has and hasn't occurred as a result of the lawsuit that uh, was just mentioned. Who's, Who's we? Are you with a group? Yes, I'm Susan Dua. I'm the executive director of Center for Independence of the Disabled in New York, Sydney. And uh, we were a lead plaintiff in the lawsuit that was just discussed. Now I know who you are. Absolutely. It's great to hear your voice. So um, we have been following closely and engaging in the dialogue around implementation and accountability, going to court um, to say that there is no plan for high-rise evacuation and that the decision required one, and it proposed that there be evacuation equipment in especially publicly owned or operated or funded high-rise buildings, and that there be uh, equipment brought in that there, you know, we tried to persuade the city that there should also be a dedicated team to helping people evacuate from fire from high-rises, because so many firefighters in the event of a disaster are fighting fires or they are right. dealing with downed power lines so and let, so So let's on. linger on this for a second and take an example of what it might take. Josh, the woman in your story, Melba Torres, yes. she lived on yes. what floor? She lives on the eighth floor. And she has what disability? She was born with cerebral palsy. And so she uses a wheelchair to a get A motorized around. wheelchair, which obviously has to be charged, and a motorized bed. And she was stuck in her apartment, and basically nobody came to look in f- on her for like a week after the storm, right? Right. Yeah. right. So, Susan, what would satisfy your claims in the lawsuit that would be in place right. to help Melba Torres next time? I can tell you that I I know Melba very well, and I can tell you that a number of things are supposed to be in place. First, a provision for evacuation of people from high-rises so that if elevators are shut down, people can be evacuated using evacuation chairs at the very least. And then met by accessible transportation, which was a failure in Melba's case. She could still have gotten out using the elevator, but she couldn't. um, The transportation that arrived at her building wasn't accessible, so she wouldn't have been able to go anywhere. Right now, the city has completed an inventory of accessible transportation that's owned by the city, but they have no plan for deployment. Mm. They have no plan to operationalize 
transportation for people with disabilities who disproportionately are poor and who are disproportionately living in NYCHA um, buildings or other publicly funded buildings. Susan, thank you so much for calling and articulating this further. I really appreciate it. Josh, very briefly, what would the city say in response to that? Uh, they s- would say that there are plans in place and that they are working on it and that they were aware of it. Um, Melba actually buttonholed the mayor at a recent uh, uh, town hall. Um, and I, I also want to note that only a fraction of the shelters that have been placed are uh, equipped for disabled individuals, but they are in the process of retrofitting the others. Josh Robin with us, New York One reporter who's doing a five-part series on preparedness for the next Sandy five years later. The anniversary is Sunday, I guess, technically, right, the 29th. Um, Let's go on to another issue and a very different population. The number of people who died during Sandy was, I believe, 43? Actually, the the, uh, medical examiner bumped it up to 44. 44. That's just New York City residents. Correct. And most of them were on Staten Island. And you have a soundbite from Joseph Esposito, the city's emergency management commissioner. Let me play it. We had the evacuation. I, I think maybe we could have pushed that harder. He had 43 deaths during Sandy. The vast majority of people would not have died if they would have listened to the evacuation orders. People refused to evacuate right. and died. Well, what happened was was that there was a hurricane beforehand and it wasn't as bad as the officials thought it would be. And people were like, why did I evacuate then? So they didn't this time. And the fear is that as we get farther away from the anniversary, that maybe that kind of attitude would come into people's minds again. Are there other things that happened on Staten Island to contribute to the death toll? I'm a little queasy about leaving it as you know, you're responsible for your own death here because you refuse to behave in the right way. But that's a factor. Yeah, but I think also that there was a false sense of security because the city had done some walls at the beaches, particularly like in Oakwood Beach, but it was it proved inadequate. And, um, you know, look, ultimately, people have to take responsibility. But um, we're a city where we're packed in together. And even on Staten Island, the neighborhoods are very close. And we rely on, um, you know, our pooled resources in order to protect us. Tell us more about that neighborhood of Staten Island along the water. For a lot of listeners who've never been to that part of Staten Island, we have a lot of listeners who've never been on Staten Island. <laughs> um, what what What's it like and what have they done? Is this another success story preventing, or, you know, preparing for another storm there? This is a very interesting story. People should go out to to Staten Island and to Oakwood Beach. Uh, Oakwood Beach was hit extremely hard. And by the way, it's quite diverse out there. Um, uh, You know, the uh, the stereotypes don't always hold true. Um, So Oakwood Beach got hit extremely hard. And this, this neighborhood was built in an area that was very fragile. And what happened subsequently is that the state has bought out a lot of homes there and has turned it over to nature, letting you know nature run its course. But not everyone has gotten bought out. So I hadn't been back there in a couple of years, and it was incredible to see how these blocks of homes had just become like lots now with trees, but there were still a couple of people who held out, and they were walking around an area that 
it used to be filled with you know kids on bikes and and neighbors and now it's just homes sticking out and uh, they, some of them don't want to leave, but they're not getting the same kind of city services as they did previously. Paul in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, Paul. Yeah, hi, Brian. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Uh, I'm an architect here in New York, and uh, since Sandy, I've been kind of disappointed that the uh, very old proposal to build a uh, tidal surge barrier, protect the city, and the most uh, optimal one would be would would basically stand from Sandy Hook, New Jersey, to the Rockaways, and uh, also a small a smaller one at the at the mouth of the East River, uh, somewhere between Long Island and uh, Connecticut. But I'm disappointed that those studies are not seriously pursued because you look at the costs, the insurance costs, and damages of Hurricane Sandy, and you're pretty much at the cost of the tidal barrier. You know, whenever they could have built that. Uh, which was 20 to $25 billion. So, uh, I mean, I've attended uh, seminars here in the city, and, and they talk about hardening defenses here in the city and, and the big U, and I just feel it's, it's, uh, it's kind of disappointing that they're, they're undertaking this cost and, 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 and dramatic uh, change to the urban environment close to us, changing our, the character of our neighborhoods. And really, a better solution would be to move your line of defense out as far as you can and uh, it just seems to make more sense. And then you're protecting what, everyone. What does that mean? Move your line? In other words, put the seawall further out from the shore? Yeah, like they have all around the world. Other cities have tidal barriers that are moved way out. And the most important part is you're not privatizing the cost of the defenses you know, by changing the building codes and making people pay for all these costs, like moving the boilers up above the flood plane. You're protecting everyone, and, and it's not a privatized cost. The government yeah. and, and other agencies are paying for it. How much, uh, you know, as an architect, to the extent that you have an answer to this question, how much can you really do that? If you move it out further and build a maximum seawall, do you not have to prepare the buildings along the coast for the change in climate over the coming decades? Is that one fix really prevent the need for all that um, private shoring up? Well, you're certainly lessening the need for it because you're, you're saying, well, we're, we're protected. Now, obviously, the only problem, and, and I raised this question previously, is they don't know that there'd come a point where the sea levels may rise and may, may make, make the whole barrier uh, inadequate. But at least, I mean, let's say 10, 20 years from now, we get another Sandy-type event. At least we were protected yeah. and we made to, the investment of the cost. To that, to that degree. Paul, thank you for your call. Uh, Josh, I don't know how familiar you are with this issue, but is that realistic? Is anybody talking about a slightly further out, maybe even higher, but even longer and broader, yeah. big U or whatever the letter shape would be <laughs> in that case? Uh, and it, it, it almost sounds like a too good to be true one wall fix. Uh, that's a very good point. I'm actually very well familiar with these. I visited them in the Netherlands. Um, there uh, is actually a growing movement to get these built. It would be extremely expensive. The permitting that you see onshore is like double that when you build in the middle of the water. Um, all, all I can say is, is that there is a lot of nuance to these stories. They're not a panacea. And you know you could spend an entire show talking about why. Um, but I will say just reporting-wise that it is the conversation of it is certainly in the mix. Josh Robin from New York One. Don't tell anybody, but he's married to Manu Samarodi. 
and a great urban reporter for New York One who's done a really excellent five-part series on preparedness for the next Sandy as we hit the five-year anniversary of the first one this weekend. Josh, thanks a lot. Okay, Brian, thank you.